passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Father, thank you for the chance to open your word and to hear from you. And God, I pray that that would be the case this morning, that you would come, that you would speak to us. And Father, as we look at the last days of Abraham, that we would be able to apply these truths to our lives and that we would be more and more transformed into the image of your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to uh, the alternative, alternative, alternative location of Crosswinds Church here in Spencer. Uh, we are uh, excited that you are here with us this morning. I uh, just wanted to give a brief recap of what we talked about last week. If you were with us uh, last week, you remember that we were talking a little bit about this important characteristic of God, uh, this uh, very important character trait called providence, that God is a providential God. It's a big theological term that essentially can just be boiled down to mean that God cares for his creation, that God provides for his creation. And that includes you and that includes me. Providence means that God is always at work, that he is always sustaining his creation. He's ordering his creation. He's guiding his creation. God is someone who is intimately involved in our lives, working them out for our good and for his glory. Of course, all of that is true whether we notice it or whether we don't notice it. And last week we saw the providence of God on, uh, at work on behalf of Abraham as, as he was seeking out a, as a uh, bride for his son Isaac. And he sent a servant to go and find a bride for Isaac and traveled nearly a thousand miles round trip to find this person. You see, Abraham knew that God had promised him something. He knew that God had promised him many descendants, and he had promised that those descendants would be known through Isaac. And he had seen that God had worked in the past, and he was confident that God would work in the future. He had seen God come through time and time again, and so he trusted God, and he trusted God's commitment to him to keep his word to Abraham, even when things may have appeared bleak on the surface. We saw Abraham with this otherworldly confidence in God, this otherworldly confidence in God's provision for him. But Abraham wasn't the only one who showed this great faith. Abraham's servant showed this faith as well as, as even Rebecca showing this same sort of faith. And the reason why they all were so confident in God's working on their behalf is because they had seen God at work in the past. It remembered God at work in their past. And so last week we took the time to identify times and ways that God had been at work in our own lives in the past. How God had been at work in our lives even now. I encourage us to do that moving forward. To continue to spend time reminding each other of God at work in our lives. You see the sad reality is that we as humans have terrible memories. We are prone to forget how God is at work in our lives. That's what the entire Old Testament seems to be about. God working on behalf of the people of Israel and the people of Israel forgetting it just a few days later. 
the time of the Exodus, God delivers the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And then just a few days later, they are making their own gods to worship. They're accusing God of wanting to kill them in the wilderness. Time and time again, throughout Israel's history, God would save and deliver them by raising up a judge or a king to work on their behalf. And then they would forget him and run away from him just a few days later. It'd be so sad if it weren't so true of our own lives, wouldn't it be? You see, we have a tendency to forget how God has been at work in our lives even just a few days ago. Which makes it so difficult for, why, for us when things are tough in the moment right now. And you see, whether we recognize it or not, God is at work on our behalf. In the highs and in the lows. In the good times and in the bad. When we can't see and when we can see clearly, God is at work. If only we would just notice. You see, God is always doing something in your life, even if you can't recognize it. God is at work in your life when you get a promotion at work. And God is at work in your life when you get fired and you have no idea where your next paycheck is coming from. God is at work when you have your first child. And God is at work when you struggle with fertility and have no idea what God is doing. God is at work in the best moments of your life. And God is at work even when you lose loved ones to death. You see, God's providence and his love covers all of life. I would venture a guess that each and every one of us here has lost someone that we have loved. Whether that's a parent, a grandparent, a spouse, a friend, or even a child. How do we, recon- how do we reconcile this news of God working for us on our behalf, that he loves us? How do we reconcile that truth with the death of those that we care for? Blaise Pascal, he was a... Uh, mathematician in the early 1600s, and he's also a, a theologian. He did everything that he uh, did, made some great uh, discoveries in, in mathematics, did everything that he did out of a great love for God. He wrote this concerning the death of his father. He said this, we who are bereaved by the death of our father will find no solid relief unless we acknowledge that what has occurred is a result, not of chance, nor of some fatal necessity of nature, nor of the interplay of the elements or parts of the human condition. It is rather an event indispensable, just, holy, and useful for the well-being of the church and for the exaltation of the name and of the glory of God. Pascal's perspective here can be very difficult to understand, but it provides us a great perspective on grieving and on death, and on loss. He says that the key to understanding these difficult moments is to look at them as coming from the hand of God, to trust God, even in the midst of the most difficult times that we could ever experience. And I imagine that Abraham felt the exact same way today. The text that we're going to look at and start at this morning looks at the death of Sarah. And I imagine that Abraham, as he is struggling through the death of his wife, It's clinging to God in the exact same way that Blaise Pascal does in that quote. You see, over the last couple months, we've been going through Abraham's life, looking at different uh, events and different ways that God has been molding him and shaping him and using him for his glory in his creation. We've seen uh, great displays of faith. We've seen great displays of trust. We've seen what it means to be obedient. And at the same time, we've also seen moments of head-scratching doubt. As we turn 
our attention to the final days of Abraham. Abraham has one final lesson to teach us, and that is the lesson of legacy. You see, the reality is each and every one of us is going to face death sooner or later unless Jesus comes back. Just like Sarah, just like Abraham, death is facing each and every one of us unless Jesus comes back. The question is not, will I die? The question is instead, what will I do with the years that God has entrusted to me? How will I spend those years that God has entrusted to me? How will I invest my legacy? For many of us, we can look to people who have a great legacy, I can think of my great-grandmother. She spent literally hours each and every day praying for her grandchildren and her children and her great-grandchildren and for her church. By the time that she died in her mid-90s, she had spent literally years praying for God's work in her and in her family and in her church. And we can see the fruits that is evident from all of the years of prayer and of her legacy as many of her children walk with God and many of her grandchildren, even great-grandchildren, walk with God. Her legacy was intact. But it isn't just a good legacy that we can leave. We could also leave a bad legacy. For others, we can look at their lives and we can see it as a life of disappointment because they're not really sure what they have invested in. We don't see them living life intentionally. We don't see them living with foresight, with a purpose in this life. And that can be frightening. It can be frightening to look at those who have not just left no legacy, but to leave a negative legacy for those that come after him. At the end of Sarah's life, at the end of Abraham's life, it begs us the question, what sort of legacy are you leaving? What are you investing your life in? Let's take a look at Genesis chapter 23 and then Genesis 25 to see the type of legacy that these two leave. First, Genesis 23. If you remember last week, we actually looked at Genesis 24, which serves kind of as the the in-between between the death of Sarah in Genesis 23 and the death of Abraham in chapter 25. And Genesis 23 opens with this death of Sarah. It opens with the the pain that Abraham is experiencing. Let's pick up in verse 1. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiriath Arba, that is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and a foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. This passage opens with the tragic news of Sarah's death. Sarah has lived a good life, but even a life that is well lived must eventually end in death in a world that lives under the curse of sin. And Abraham is hit like a truck. Abraham is hit by a truck by this news. Even though the reality of death was drawing ever closer to Abraham, he was elder. He was Sarah's elder by 10 years. And he probably assumed he would be the first one to die. This is the woman that he had loved from his youth. Context, in ancient times, especially during the time of Genesis, it was pretty typical for a woman to marry at about the age 15. And so even if that is off by a few years here with Abraham and Sarah, That means that they have been 
married for 112 years by the time that Sarah has died. Imagine that wedding anniversary. Abraham and Sarah have been with one another from the very beginning. They have experienced the highs together. They've experienced the lows together. And for over 60 years, Abraham and Sarah have walked together following God. Sarah has been Abraham's faithful companion and the journey of discipleship. You see, God doesn't just call Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He doesn't just call Abraham to leave everything and follow him. He calls Sarah to do the same thing. And just like Abraham, Sarah has to let go of her dreams, let go of her dreams of comfort, let go of her dreams of living near their family to follow God and to follow her husband. And men, maybe you can relate to that sense of gratitude that Abraham feels for Sarah giving up her dreams to follow God, to follow Abraham. I I can think of how many things that Crystal has given up in her own life, just to allow me to follow God faithfully, and we follow God's calling on our lives. And I'm eternally grateful for that selfless love. And that's the exact same sort of love that Abraham experiences here. It's just had a, about a hundred more years to marinate than, than Crystal and I have. It's no wonder that this text tells us that Abraham weeps over the death of Sarah. That's the first time that we see this phrase used in the entire Bible. Someone weeping over the death of a loved one. Through it all, through the good and the bad, Sarah has been by his side. Their marriage hasn't been perfect, but it has been good. And now she is gone. You see, it's for this reason that Abraham desires to honor Sarah in her death. He's living in a land that doesn't belong to him. He is a sojourner. He is a foreigner. He has no land to call his own. And so Abraham approaches the natives, the Hittites here in this passage, and asks them for some land. Remember, up to this point, Abraham doesn't own any actual land in Israel or in Canaan at this time. Abraham has no permanent stake in the promised land. And he wants to bury his wife. But in order to do so, he needs some land first. And we're going to summarize the rest of this passage for the sake of time. But what we notice is that Abraham, as he approaches the Hittites, he asks for land, but he does so as uh, in a way that he emphasizes the fact that he is transient, that he is on the fringes of society, that he is really powerless. Even though he has large flocks and he is a very wealthy person, he still emphasizes the fact that he is powerless in their society as a sojourner. And so he asks for some land, and the Hittites are gracious. They offer him any of their tombs, any of the choices of their tombs, and yet he declines that and says, I want to buy some land from Ephron. And so he approaches Ephron, and Ephron offers to give the land to him, but Abraham again refuses. And so Ephron decides to uh, announce that this is going to be a a certain price and begins the bartering uh, process, which was very traditional uh, in that day and age. But Abraham doesn't barter. It was an expected thing for Abraham to do at this time, but he doesn't barter. Instead, he decides to pay the exorbitant inflated price right up front. And the question is, why? Why is it that Abraham is doing this? Why is he unwilling to accept the generosity of the Hittites? Why is he unwilling to uh, uh, just barter and instead overpays for this tract of land? 
To understand that, we have to understand the way ancient real estate transactions work. And that's probably what you expected you would be talking about on Sunday when you came to church. Ancient real estate transactions. See, before mortgages, before lenders, before property lines, before even land prospectors, the way real estate was, changed, was exchanged in ancient times was through family members. It was extremely frowned upon to sell land to someone who didn't live in your clan or as a part of your family itself. And the reason was because a person's life was really tied to the land itself. And so if you wanted to sell land to someone, if you were in so much debt that you just had to sell land, the good news for you was that that was a, that was a sale that was really pretty temporary. In a couple of generations, the land would return to your family and your children and your children's children would actually have a place to live on. If you wanted to sell land permanently, if you wanted to sell that, that land to someone outside of your clan, outside of your family, you would need approval of the entire community. Notice that Abraham brings this up in front of the entire community of Hittites here. But notice also that the reason Abraham pays such a high price for this land is because he doesn't want people in the future to think that he took advantage of Ephron. He doesn't want to leave any possible reason, any possible excuse for this land to return to Ephron's family. He wants this to be a permanent resting place, a permanent place to pay his respects to Sarah and for himself as well in the future. See, Abraham wants some land that he can claim is his, not just temporarily, but permanently. And he wants that place to be a resting place that won't return to the Hittites. That's how this chapter ends, picking up in verse 17. It says this, So the field of Ephron in Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife in the cave in the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burying place by the Hittites. Notice the significance of this purchase by Abraham. Notice the reason why Abraham purchases this. Abraham is mourning for his wife. He is in the stages of grief. He knows that he is nearing death himself, and yet he purchases this land with confidence. You see, God has promised Abraham that he will one day inherit the entire land of Canaan. And Abraham is close to his own death, and yet he doesn't own any of the land at this point. So Abraham decides to buy some of this land as a way of stating his confidence in the promises of God, as a way of stating that he believes that God will come through, that God will fulfill his promises of land, just like he has promised and fulfilled every single other promise that he has made to Abraham. Even here in the midst of Sarah's death, he is stating where his hope is. He is stating that his hope is found in God. His hope is found in the promises of God, that God will give him what he has said he will. And throughout history, Sarah's tombstone here is a declaration of that confidence. It's a declaration of Abraham's confidence that God is a God who provides what he promises. 
And that's the good news of Genesis chapter 23. Even in the midst of death, Abraham is confident. And he expresses his hope that God will provide what he has promised. And so 38 years pass. Isaac and Rebekah marry after the servant finds Isaac a wife. Abraham himself even remarries, has other children, as we see at the beginning of Genesis chapter 25. And even though Abraham grieves the loss of his lifelong companion, he actually has many other sons. And he gets to see them grow up, just as God promised that he would one day get to see his children. And then he gets to see his grandchildren. He gets to see Esau and Jacob, who are introduced to next week, the children of Rebekah and Isaac. God has been good to Abraham. God has blessed Abraham with every single thing that God has promised to him. And yet even at the end of his extended life, which is probably two times longer than many of us may reach, Abraham's life on earth comes to an end. Pick up in Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 7. It says this, These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. Notice the language in this passage. Notice how it's referring to the blessedness of Abraham here. First, it describes Abraham as a man who dies in a good old age. He has lived a life that is well lived. He has few regrets. And each of us should aspire to that same type of life, to live a life to a good old age. Second, he lives a life full of years. Not only does he live a life worth living, but he lives a long time. Now, most people would start coasting at age 75, but Abraham, that's when he really begins his life story. That's when he begins to follow God. He begins this new life of discipleship, of following God, of obedience to God. And because of that, he gets to see sons and he gets to see grandsons after thinking and resigning to the fact that he would be childless for the rest of his life. And then notice, finally, it describes him as being gathered to his people. In Genesis chapter 11 and Genesis chapter 12, the text tells us that Abraham leaves behind his people. That Abraham believes, leaves behind every single family member except for a few to follow God. And yet God had promised him that he would become a great nation. And that's what we see here, that God is making him into a great nation, that he actually has people now. As he looks around, he sees his sons and he sees his grandchildren, and he just smiles because God has given him what he has promised. God told him to leave his people, and now God has given him a people. God has blessed Abraham. And God has kept his promises to Abraham. And so like Sarah, Abraham is buried in the tomb purchased from the Hittites. And like Sarah, his grave is a testament to the faithfulness of God. It's a testament to his own confidence in God's promises for him. And that confidence is not misplaced. The entire text of Genesis 25, what we skipped over at the beginning, the first six verses and what comes next, all are telling us that God has answered 
Abraham's prayers. That God has kept his promises to Abraham. Notice, first of all, God has promised Abraham a relationship with him. And that relationship is evident not only just through Genesis 12 through 24, but that relationship is evident here as well with all of that Abraham has received from God. And then that relationship is passed on to Isaac here at the end of this passage. God has blessed and has kept his promises to Abraham. God also promised to Abraham that he would be a great family, that he would be a great nation. The the section that we skipped over here at the beginning, the first six verses, talk about how many other children Abraham has. And then the next section that talks about Ishmael's descendants refers to how many children Abraham has. God has kept his promise of a great family to Abraham. And then finally, God also promised Abraham land. He promised Abraham that he would give him the land of Canaan. And as he is laid in a tomb that that he owns, that belongs to him and his family, the message is clear. God keeps his promises. That's really what the death of Sarah and the death of Abraham are all about. They show us a great confidence in God. They show us that God fulfills his promises. That God is someone who keeps his promises. But notice that he doesn't keep them in their entirety. They're not fully fulfilled at this moment. It isn't until generations later that they are fully realized. And really, ultimately, it's not until the cross where these are fully realized. The message of this passage is clear. God keeps his promises to his children. And if you were to sum up the lives of Abraham and the life of Sarah, I think you could probably do it in just one word. Faithfulness. But this isn't the faithfulness of Abraham and Sarah. This is the faithfulness of God to them. You see, Abraham and Sarah, yes, they, they were great, a uh, uh, great mother and a great father of the faith. They, they showed great faith in their lives, but they fell short. They screwed up. They made shameful decisions. And God chose to stick with them anyway. God was faithful to his adopted children. It doesn't matter how, hard, or how far they strayed away from him. God was faithful to Abraham and Sarah. What a great lesson for us on our journeys of faith as well, is it not? The focus of our journey of faith is not primarily our faithfulness, but it is the faithfulness of God to us. God is faithful. That's the beginning of the legacy that we learn as we look at Abraham and Sarah's life. We we see this faithfulness of God. And as we continue, we're going to see seven key aspects of their lives that, that point us to their legacy. It shows how they influence their future generations and really how we can live in such a way that we influence future generations as well. You see, what you do today matters for the future. A pastor, his name's Crawford Loritz, he puts it this way, what you do each day is exponential. What you do each day is exponential. In one sense, that's referring to the habits that we are trying to cultivate in our lives. What we do today will continue to affect us for the rest of our lives. But also at the same time, it points to the ways that we live out our lives in a sense of legacy, how we impact the future, either for the good or for the bad with our lives. When I lived in Chicago, I would meet with a couple students uh, on a regular occasion. And there was this one middle school student that I would meet with. 
And this middle school student and I would talk often about the struggles of life, um, mainly about that, that student's struggles. And as I was talking with this student, I became increasingly disturbed by the things that I heard. I was increasingly disturbed by the fact that this man was living and talking and thinking from such a vulgar and crude place in his life. And I began to develop this sense of angst about this situation. And and how do I speak into this young man's life? And then I realized where the source of all of my, my discomfort was coming from. It was coming from his parents. As he told me more about his life, he told me more about his home life, I realized that my problems weren't primarily with him, but they were with his parents. They had taught him how to live in such a way, and that's what made my blood boil. But then I realized, I took another step back and realized, well, it's probably because they were raised that same way. And you could go back and further back and further back to see the root cause of this legacy, this gradual deterioration of this legacy that was left and affects generations to come for the worse. But the same can be said of a good legacy. I mentioned earlier my great-grandmother who left a great legacy, but that legacy didn't start with her. It started with her parents and her parents' parents and, and on and on and on before that. A legacy is lasting, not just for the next generation, but for generations to come. What you do today is exponential. And so as we look at the lives of Abraham and Sarah and we look at the legacy that they left for their children, we can look and see seven key truths. The first one is this. Abraham and Sarah left a legacy of faith. In the same way, we also should leave a legacy of faith for those who come after us. If you look at the New Testament, the New Testament is filled with references to Abraham and most of them focus on the faith of Abraham. Take a look at Romans chapter 4. It says this, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham is known for his faith throughout Scripture. He had an incredible, radical trust in God. And the faith that he shows in God was a faith that believed that God would provide what he had asked for. And God counts that to him as righteousness. In your own life, leave a legacy of faith. If you're friends with me on Facebook, you have probably seen me share uh, a couple articles from this website called the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee is the Christian version of The Onion, if you've heard of that. It's a satirical news site, and so it posts funny uh, sorts of news articles that are completely fake. And so one that, that I saw was, that was pretty funny a couple days ago uh, was about this church that voted to approve changing one of the light bulbs, and they had an entire congregational meeting for that. Another one said that a witty church sign sparks revival in this small town. And just, again, pointing out some of the funny things that we believe here as Christians. Or maybe, maybe a better way of saying that is funny things that are part of our Christian culture. Uh, a recent uh, article had the headline of this. After 12 years of quarterly church attendance, parents shocked by their daughter's lack of faith. 
The implication of that story, of course, is that after 12 years of teaching their, ch- their daughter that faith really wasn't all that important to them. After teaching their daughter with their actions time and time again that things were more important to them than faith, they were shocked that their daughter believed the exact same thing. They left a legacy of a lack of faith. They taught their daughter that faith had no consequence, and so their daughter decided to leave the church. So ask yourself, are you leaving a legacy of faith? Are you passing down faith, not just with your words, but with your actions? A legacy is something that is more often caught than taught. Leave a legacy of faith. Second, leave a legacy of joy and thanksgiving. If you look at Abraham's life, it was a life of joy. It was a life of thanksgiving. You notice how they responded when Isaac was born? The very name Isaac refers to laughter. They were overcome with gratitude for the gift that God had given them. In your life, live a legacy of joy and of thanksgiving. Joy and thanksgiving are infectious, but so is cynicism. And so is ingratitude. Which legacy are you leaving? Are you someone who is going to be known for being quick to praise others and praise God for what you're seeing? Or are you going to be known as someone who is not joyful? Someone who looks for the worst in each person? Friends, let us leave a legacy of joy and a legacy of thanksgiving. Next thing that we see from Abraham and Sarah's life is a legacy of confidence. In our own lives, let us leave a legacy of confidence as well. You see, as Abraham and Sarah approached the end of their lives... As they grew closer and closer to death, they had more and more confidence that God would provide for them. That God would provide what he had promised. In short, they had more and more confidence in the providence of God. That God was working on their behalf. They were confident that God was working for them. That God was faithful. That God was going to come through. That's my prayer that we are known for the same thing. That we have confidence in God. We are confident that God will come through for us. That we are confident that God is faithful, that he loves us, and that we would express this confidence with humility. Leave a legacy of confidence. Next thing we see from Abraham and Sarah's life is a legacy of longing, a legacy of longing. In our own lives, we should offer or aspire to the same sort of thing. Hebrews provides us with a great perspective on the life of Abraham and Sarah. It says this, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, the one who desires a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." Abraham and Sarah lived their lives as sojourners. They held this earth and they held this life loosely. They knew that something better was in store for them. That's why I love the ending of that passage I just read you. Verse 16, it says that he had prepared for them a city. And even more so, they desired a better country. They desired a better kingdom. Do you desire that same thing? Do you desire a better country? Do 
Do you yearn for the coming kingdom of God? I'll be honest, I, I say yes with my lips, but uh, oftentimes my heart still loves the world. Oftentimes my heart still loves this country just fine, this kingdom just fine. We must be known as a people who long for the coming kingdom. We must be known as people who hold loosely to this world because we desire a better one. Leave a legacy of longing. Next thing that we see is a legacy of repentance. A legacy of repentance. For some of you, as you hear this list, uh, you, you may feel somewhat guilty of your past. Uh, you may feel somewhat guilty that you have um, not been uh, able to leave a legacy uh, of faith, a legacy of longing, a legacy of confidence, a legacy of joy. The good news as you look at Genesis is that there are many times where Abraham screws up. And there are many times where he responds with repentance. Abraham did things that we wouldn't dream of doing. We look at him, we see him fall, and yet he repents each and every time. Notice these words from Genesis chapter 13, first four verses. This is after one of the biggest screw-up moments in his life. It says this, So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, silver and in gold. And he journeyed on to the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abraham called upon the name of the Lord. After screwing up, Abraham returns to the place where he had been at the beginning, And he returned to God and worshiped God. He pleaded with God to come through for him with forgiveness. And I pray that we would do the exact same thing. I don't think God finds anything more desirable in our lives than for his children to be humble and to be contrite in heart. And that repentance provides us with an opportunity to point others to the grace that God has for us. And so leave a legacy of repentance. Leave a legacy of forgiveness, of saying sorry, of turning from your sin. Leave a legacy of repentance. Another one here. Leave a legacy of boldness. Leave a legacy of boldness. If you look at Genesis chapter 14, as you look at this story of a daring rescue mission from from Abraham to rescue the people of of Sodom from these Mesopotamian kings, it's this story of strength, this story of courage, this story of boldness. And it's my prayer that we would leave that exact same legacy. That we would be known to future generations for courageously standing up for what is right and not being silent. That we would not be cowards, but we would share with boldness our faith. And also that we would be bold before God, even as Abraham is in Genesis chapter 18. That we would leave a legacy of boldness. Next, leave a legacy of fruit. James chapter 2 is another very popular passage about Abraham and his faith. And it says this, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completely, it was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. The way that our faith works itself out is through fruit. I pray that we would not just profess what we believe, but we would live out lives bearing much fruit. We can look at many other areas of Abraham's life and of Sarah's life and the legacy that they leave for us and for their children. But I think it's important for us to ask, what legacy are we ourselves leaving? If you have screwed up in the past, if you've made mistakes, if you feel like you have abandoned God, the good news is God has not abandoned you. That God is faithful to you just as he was to Abraham and Sarah. And so ask yourself, how will I be remembered? What will my legacy be? Each and every one of us has an incredible opportunity. In the early 1900s, there was this pastor who decided to look at the life of Jonathan Edwards. If you're familiar with Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and a theologian, a philosopher from the early 1700s. He's probably known as the uh, uh, most important American theologian who has ever lived. He was extremely devout to God, and even, uh, even Jonathan Edwards would say that his wife, Sarah, uh, was even more uh, devout than he was, and that's why he was uh, uh, drawn to her in the first place. This pastor from the 1900s looks at Abraham, or looks at Jonathan's life, and looks at Sarah's life, looks at their 11 children, and then spends time mapping out all of their descendants and seeing what kind of legacy Abraham or Jonathan and Sarah left. And, and just listen to this. This is astounding. From from the early 1700s all the way through the early 1900s, this is the legacy that they left from their family. There was one vice president, three U.S. senators, three U.S. governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries, to say nothing of the number of them that were pastors as well. They left an incredible legacy, a legacy not just for their children, not just for their children's children, but a legacy that still exists to this day, a legacy of faith, a legacy of longing, a legacy looking to God. But at the same time that this pastor looked at the the legacy of Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Edwards, he also looked at the legacy of a man named Max Jukes. Max Jukes was a, a contemporary of Jonathan and Sarah Edwards. He was a man who was in and out of prison frequently. He was a drunkard. He was a fiend. And this man decided to map out Max Jukes' lineage as well and his descendants. And he discovered that from this man came seven murderers, 60 thieves, 50 promiscuous women, 130 other convicts, 310 paupers, and 400 people who wasted all of their finances on indulgent living and gambling. Your legacy matters. What you do today affects the future in a way that you can never imagine. And so follow the example of someone like Sarah and Jonathan Edwards. As we spent time looking at Sarah and Abraham, follow their example and leave a legacy of good for those who come after you. What will your legacy be? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are gracious to us and that you walk with us even when we screw up, even when we fall short of your plan. 
of your glory and of your goodness. Thank you that you are faithful to us, that you love us and that you watch over us, God. I pray that you would be with us. Give us the strength to live each day intentionally and to live each day for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.